Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear from Trevor Oldham, the founder of Podcasting You and host of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. Trevor has been running Podcasting You, a podcasting booking agency that helps real estate investors guest on podcasts. And after working with hundreds of real estate clients, he shares tips and tricks along with insights from his guests for how to start investing in real estate, grow your real estate business, and how to build credibility and become a go-to expert. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. And today on the show, we have Johnny Wolf. He is the CEO and founder of Homeroom Co-Living, one of the fastest growing co-living companies in the United States. After starting his career as a financial analyst in Silicon Valley, working for EA, SanDisk, and GuideSpark, he relocated to Austin, Texas to pursue real estate investing full-time. His love for real estate investing, as he's also been investing since 2008, and living with roommates, which he has done since 2002, motivated him to start Homeroom in 2017 after an unusually terrible Craigslist roommate experience. In 2020, Homeroom boasted 99% on-time rent payments, full occupancy, and zero evictions. Sales velocity for Homeroom is up 300% in 2021 with hundreds of happy residents across 23 cities in three states. Powered by recent investor funds, Homeroom expanded to Dallas in October 2020 and Austin, Texas in April 2021. And the really cool thing is, is that Johnny still lives in one of the Homeroom's first co-living houses located in Kansas City. Johnny, super excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Trevor, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And Johnny, for our audience out there that's you know learning about yourself and your company for the first time, I'd love for you to dive into your background and, and what got you started into the, the real estate investing space. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, graduated college in 2007 and started my career kind of like you described in the Silicon Valley and was looking for investment options. Um, I, you know, gotten a bonus and I had, you know, five or $10,000. I forget the exact amount. And someone said, Hey, why don't you invest out of state? It was back in, in 2008. There was still 10% down investor loans available, uh, which was like, I was like, wow, that's all you have to do to buy in the house. I think it was a hundred thousand. Uh, it was in Midland, Texas, uh, and it was brand new. So, it, you know, I invested. It was you know, actually a really good experience. I, my cash, the numbers were terrible on that first deal because I didn't know how to run numbers. Uh, but the experience of kind of investing and watching the value go up over time and kind of learning what, you know, the different cadences of things breaking and new tenants coming in. I think it just took a lot of the initial fear that I had of, investing out of state, investing away. Um, so I continued to buy uh, properties out of state, bought one um, with my self-managed IRA. Uh, and then in 2015, I kind of uh, worked up my career in finance and was working at a, a bank in San Francisco and just realized that I'm not going to be able to buy a house in this city, even though like I'm a vice president at this bank, it's going to be like five years, 10 years of aggressive saving. Um, the prices were at, you know, a million plus in any of the neighborhoods I wanted to live in. Um, and so I, and jumbo loans were only up to like 700,000 in the area. So you had to come in with so much cash. So I moved to Austin, uh, and started to focus on investing in real estate. I did some analysis on different markets throughout the United States. And I thought that Austin had the best appreciation potential. Um, it wasn't a difficult choice at the time because it really had a pretty good track record 
over the, the previous four years. And so I bought a number of properties, brought a duplex when I first moved there and then a couple single family homes. And, um, yeah, it, I don't regret it at all. We, we transitioned them all to roommate properties and that's sort of how the idea for home room started because I was buying homes that are just a little too expensive to cash flow as single family rentals. So I thought, well, why can't I just do rent room, room rentals like I did in, in San Jose and San Francisco? Um, and it worked really well. It was, you know, definitely some extra pains in the butt with roommate rentals. Um, but I think just like any complicated situation, um, if you build out kind of the right checks and balances and processes and ways and, and, um, you know, anything can be kind of managed in a sustainable way if you kind of think it through. And so that's when I launched Homeroom in 2018. We used a lot of the learnings I personally had made from having those. Austin roommate properties and living with roommates a lot in uh, the Bay Area. And as you've been growing the business, and it almost almost sounds like you've done you know a house hack, but also instead of doing that, you you know I guess a little bit of like that, but having the tenants come in or the the roommates come in. So when you're looking at potential properties to so say you go out there and add to the portfolio or properties that you know you think that they'd be good. For roommates, is there a certain amount of bedrooms that you look for? Is there certain locations that you look for? Do you mind just walking through our audience, sort of, I guess, the the criteria that you look for in a potential property? Yeah, the criteria for co-living property is super important, especially depending, you know, we we are have gotten really good at it to the point that we have a team in the Philippines who actually, like, will scout every property that hits the market in every one of our markets every morning. And it's more than just um, beds and baths and neighborhood, all that's evaluated, but it's also like other extra spaces that can potentially become an additional bedroom or two. So the main things we're looking for is we want two shared showers. Uh, we find that when there's only one shower and someone's, everyone's getting out of work and the, goes to work in the morning, um, it just, it creates a log jam. So it, and, and a shower in a master be- bedroom, not super helpful to everybody, just that <laughs> one person. So we need two shared showers. Uh, we also want ample parking. Really important for co-living is, you know, cities have these occupancy laws that are kind of against unrelated tenants. And that's just because properties that have a ton of unrelated people can be poorly cared for. So we're going the opposite direction. We have professional yard care. We have professional Mm -hmm. maid service. We ensure that we make sure there's enough parking in front of the property. We really love corner lots so that we can park in front and on the side um, and on the driveway. So we make sure that people living with home or don't have to park in front of their neighbor's houses, which neighbors do not like. Um, so those are two big keys. The other thing is kind of square footage and like area for additional bedrooms. Um, we like to have four five, six, sometimes even seven roommates in a property, but it's really important that the space is conducive to that. That means that the dining room can have seven people eating together. We want that community. The living room can have seven people sitting and watching TV together. So each, everything we're kind of doing means that like, if we're going to have this many people, this house needs to be able to support it. So those are all the pieces in terms of numbers. You know, the more bedrooms you get, the, the better your returns typically are. So we are looking for kind of that opportunity depending on what the investor's goal is. Some investors prefer less modification to the property. Mm. Some prefer more, some prefer none. So we can work with all of those frameworks. In addition to making more revenue by renting by the room, like, we can increase rent in some properties by 75%, which is pretty crazy. But in addition to that, it's more stable. You have seven people paying rent. So if like one can't pay, you still get six sevens, right? So it kind of creates a multifamily situation where you're never going to have a $0 a month. With a single family rental, you have like that big divot. So it's definitely easier than short-term rentals. It's definitely harder than regular rentals. 
it's kind of in between, but it's more stable than both and a bit more cash flow than the, the short term or the normal rental. I can imagine when that, when you were going through the process of building the company, that the, the experience is probably a little bit different than what's fared over the last, say, 12, 18 months. And, and how has the company and the co-living experience been like throughout the pandemic? Have you noticed roommates staying in place? Are they a little skeptical of it, you know, living with people that they're uncertain of? I'd love for you just to walk through your experience of that really over the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah. It, um, the first like March, April, May, that first few months, I think, you know, I think we all had that experience where we were walking through shopping centers and there was like no toilet paper. And you're just like, it sort of feels like, holy shit, the world's falling apart. And so that we felt that even more intensely at homeroom. You know, we have roommates, you know, that are like freaking out. They're like, do I have to pay rent? All this stuff. But we moved very quickly to create a protocol for the roommates. Like, hey, if COVID hits one of your roommates, do this, right? Person needs to go in their room and isolate. We'll get them food delivered. We're going to have, we have a, you know, we had a friend of mine who's a medical doctor, um, would advise kind of the property. Um, and so we actually had two, three houses get it. And only one of those three did a roommate spread COVID to another roommate. So, you know, that was very effective. We also in 2019 had switched to fully remote leasing. We didn't have anyone giving in-person tours. As a roommate, you could do a virtual tour or you could go to the house and have another roommate show you around, but we would not be present. And so that actually enabled us to continue to lease pretty similarly to before. So I would say the first three months were very scary, challenge, super challenging. I thought like, like the, we were going to go under. Um, I wrote like a pretty sad letter to the investors, but we actually did pretty well. After about six months, we expanded to Dallas in September. So a lot of it was just the remote processes we had built kind of in advance, not really for it, but it ended up working out really well for us. And for the roommates that you have in place when they're coming in and they're leasing out, say, the room, are they like on a month to month contract? Are they on a 12 month contract or I guess one year contract? What does sort of that structure look like when you're bringing in a new roommate tenant? Yeah. So we don't do month to month. The shortest we'll do is three months. Part of the reason for that is that we think of it as a community and when you have just like constant uh, movement, it's a little bit more work for everyone to get to know each other. Um, and they, we also ask our roommates to be involved in interviewing new roommates that are coming mm-hmm. in. So we don't want them to have to do like a roommate interview like every month or twice a month or so generally they're staying about 12 months, but our pricing changes based on the length of stay. And so you can stay three months if you're an intern for the summer, but on most folks are staying for a year at least. That's excellent advice. I definitely do like that idea of, of having the other roommates interview the one, <laughs> the one roommate. Uh, I know I love you to speaking along like that, speaking along those lines and, and something that was more curiosity and intrigued me when going through your bio earlier in the show was that you had a bad roommate experience on Craigslist. I don't, you know, if you're able to share any any details from that and and just walk us through our our audience sort of what that experience was like. Yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't actually a roommate. It was a roommate search experience. It wasn't mm. an actual roommate that I had. But um, when I moved to Kansas City, I came up for a weekend to find a place, and I, I wanted to live with roommates. I was moving from one of my roommate houses in Austin. And like in San Francisco, the amount of rooms available and like people that are like, Oh, that'd be really cool to live with that person. It's just, there's a lot of those folks. Um, in Kansas city, I, it was just difficult to live kind of, it was lessly dense, densely populated. So I had like, you know, I went to one property. It was really nice, but it was, you know, this giant guy who like the average age of the people living there was in their fifties and sixties. 
at one point, like we were in his basement and I, he kind of was like standing over me and I was like cornered and I was like, what's going on here? He's just a very uncomfortable dude. And he followed up with me and more than necessary, probably. I had another, another girl who actually was like sending me pictures and like trying to meet up for a date. And I was like, no, I'm just trying to find a room. So it was just like, it was a wacky situation that I hadn't really experienced in um, San Francisco that I hadn't experienced in Austin, which I thought had gone. And I was just like, I don't really even like it in those places. So there's got to be a way to create, uh, like basically do away with Craigslist roommate searches. Mm -hmm. Like no one likes them. No one needs them. We need something better. Speaking of, of relocating a company where you mentioned you started off your career in San Francisco and then you moved to these different markets, was there a specific reason that you chose those markets? Was it a good opportunity? Was there family nearby? I'd love for you to walk our audience through some of your thought processes on why, you know, choosing, you know, Kansas City and then Dallas and then and Austin as well. You know, one of the key things that we're trying to do at Homeroom, and when I had kind of interacted with different um, turnkey real estate investment providers, and we didn't really start the company thinking we were going to do that at all. We didn't really, we had no, we, we did not have any thoughts about helping investors buy properties. When we started the company, I was like, we're just going to get these houses and we're going to master lease them. And, and so, and then we kind of made a transition at some points. Like we probably need partners that are going to buy the roommate houses and set them up. The, you know, conveniently I had moved to a city that I really want to invest in real estate in initially, which was Austin. And then I moved to Kansas city really to invest in real estate personally after kind of analyzing the markets so I had a pretty, you know, I'd spent a lot of time looking at both markets for a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. So that was like a pretty, it was an easy decision for those two markets to be part of our roadmap for investors. And then Dallas, we, we loved for, for a variety of different reasons. We think it's like a nice middle ground between Austin and Kansas City. Austin has gotten crazy expensive mm-hmm. and the, the cash flow there is almost non-existent. Kansas City, we don't, you know, I don't see it ever kind of having any big surge, frankly. It's, some migration occasionally, but mostly it's like Kansas City people stay in Kansas City. They have a really good economy, but it's not going to blow up, at least not in the near future, based on what we're seeing. But Dallas has the potential to, to maybe do what Austin did in the future. So that's why we kind of picked it. Really good migration, good amounts of for company headquarters have relocated there. It's also just a massive metro. So there's a lot of different flavors you can invest in. If you have different things you really like, some people care about age of the property. Some people care about their cash return. Some people care about other things. So we, we like to have a lot of variety for our investors across multiple markets. A lot of turnkey companies are like focused on one market and then they get tunnel vision and they have to sell that thing. By us having multiple markets, we can say, Hey, investor, what do you prefer? And then we could say, actually, we really love this, you know, the environment that we're seeing in San Antonio right now, or, Hey, Austin's a little too hot. Let's try something else. And we actually did that for a number of months when Austin was going through it's basically from March to May, we said like, we're not doing investments in Austin today because the amount of out of pocket, it just, it drives down your net, your ROI. People are having to spend a hundred thousand over list and a hundred thousand over appraisal. And when we ran the numbers on that kind of deal, the ROI actually, it was lower than Dallas and Kansas city. And so that's not really why people are going to be investing in Austin. But when you throw that much cash on top of a deal, the leverage goes way down and your, your returns go way down. So we like not, we like having multiple just so it can help us be balanced and like take care of the investor a bit better. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I think it's an overview of those different markets. But now I want to hop into a little bit about your company and you started, you know, a few years ago. I'd love for you to walk our audience through, you know, you, you know, it's almost like as if the company 
was a startup and you're, you know, building the company to the ground up. How's that experience been? You know, what are the sort of learning curves that you felt as though you've learned over the last four years or so? Our first employee, Kelly, just sent me a message that it was her three-year anniversary today. And I actually had it on my calendar um, as well. So we're basically three years old. We incorporated three years uh, in September. So we're almost officially three years, which is is pretty cool. Kind of get to that milestone. Yeah, I mean, I would... Starting a new company, it, I mean, there's it all. It depends on what type of company. I think there are companies that are a lot less intense than starting a, a co-living company across multiple cities. So I don't want to dissuade everyone, but if you're trying to do a big thing like we're trying to do, it's excruciatingly hard. Um, it's really, really, really hard. I also think that there's some luck in there too. But and there's also you know and like the kind of like your emotions go up and down a lot in terms of like the, your experience is going to be like really good one day, the next day it may be really terrible. So it's really good to have like a team of advisors around you, but also like I think building kind of a team as you get started that you can kind of rely on. If you can figure out a way to make the money work for that, it's super valuable. You also kind of as a CEO get to learn like new disciplines that you like have no experience with. So I'm a finance guy, but I had nothing. I had no experience in marketing, no experience in engineering, software engineering. So I'm learning, I'm taking like a crash course of both. So I think that's one of the cool things, right? Is you get to meet some really cool people and you also get to learn new things about things like areas of business that you never had a reason to learn. So I've actually really liked it, but I will say like, depending on like what you're doing, if you're trying to do a billion dollar startup, it's going to be the hardest thing. It's going to be very, very difficult. If you're trying to, you know, there's other businesses that I think are less of a lift, purely digital businesses, I think can be a lot. Uh, simpler. But uh, yeah, just make sure that you, you're geared up and ready to go, whatever you do, and you understand how hard it's going to be, because it'll help you to keep going if you knew that you're going to get experience that much hardship, I guess. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's excellent for, for our audience out there that's uh, thinking about starting a business and, and not, uh, you know, especially in the real estate space, that's so not always easy as what you see out there on on social media, but, but, <laughs> but Johnny, I wanted to say yeah. this, you know, this interview has been great today, but I just had a couple of quick questions that I wanted to ask you before we end the show today. Do you happen to have a favorite real estate investing or business book that you'd recommend for our audience to check out? Yeah. Um, I think my favorite, the book that I, um, that's my favorite is 50th law by Robert Greene and features 50 cent. I like to say that one because not a lot of people have heard of it. There's, you know, there's a lot of other ones that I think are really good. I think the second one that would come to mind is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think that's a super good book if you're going to start a business. But 50th Law by Robert Greene talks about fear and being tentative and slow to move and kind of like why that's not in today, how safe we all are today, right? And how much fear we have is generally like way bigger than the actual level of danger we're in, which is like danger being physical danger, not being able to eat. We all have a lot of safety around us. And so taking risk is, um, it doesn't have really as much of a floor today as it, it's a much higher floor for us today. So kind of pushed me to start, you know, to move, start this company, things like that. Yeah, I think those are a couple of good recommendations. And then the last question I have for you is where can our audience find you? Uh, livehomeroom.com. And so we have an invest page for investors. We have a, a main page for roommates. 
So you can also do both. You can invest and be a roommate. So either way, I'm also, we have intercom on there. You can email me personally at johnny at livehomeroom.com. Always happy, happy to talk to people looking to do creative real estate strategies. I do think with prices and going, continue to go up and yields continue to go down. I think the name of the real estate investing game is really like innovative strategies, value add strategies. I think what homeroom's doing is a version of that that I think is really cool, but I do think there's others out there and you know, I think exploring those, it's going to be more and more important to explore those over the next two or three years as prices continue to go up. So. Yeah, that's perfect. And I'll make sure to include that in the show notes of today's episode. And Johnny, I just want to say thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Trevor. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. For full show notes on today's episode, go to podcastingyou.com. That's podcastingyou.com. If you have feedback from today's episode, feel free to email us at trevor at podcastingyou.com. Thanks for listening.